Open up your Bibles, please, to Genesis 2, 24-25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And hurry fast to Matthew 5, 31 to 32. <laughs> it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this morning, as you could tell by the text, I will be speaking on marriage and divorce. And so before I get serious, I thought I'd read you a couple jokes. In heaven, there were two lines. One said men who were bossed by their wives, and the other one said men who weren't bossed by their wives. And there was a big line in front of the first one, but then the, there was a man who was checking people's names in the book of life, and he saw one man in the other line. And so he told the guys to wait, and he asked the man why he was in the line, and the man replied, my wife told me to come in this line. <laughs> Attending a wedding for the first time, a little girl whispered to her mother, why is the bride dressed in white? The mother said, because white is the color of happiness, and today is the happiest day of her life. And then the child thought about it for a moment and then said, why is the groom dressed in black? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Last one. Grandpa Jones was celebrating his 100th birthday, and everybody complimented on how athletic and well-preserved he appeared. Gentlemen, I'll tell you the secret to my success, he cracked. I have been in the open air day after day for 75 years now. The celebrants were impressed and asked how he managed to keep up with such a rigor rigorous physical regime. He says, well, you see, my wife and I were married 75 years ago, and on our wedding night, we made a solemn pledge. Whenever we had a fight, the one who was proved wrong would have to go outside and take a walk. <laughs> now, I share those to kind of lighten us up a little bit because I realize that in a talk like this, particularly in our day, this can actually be a very difficult topic to bring up. Marriage is wonderful. It's God's plan. Divorce hurts. My parents divorced. It hurt. And so I know in a congregation like that, there may be some here that you've, you've experienced that. And so I wanted to start there because this is a serious message. And these are the words of our Lord and Savior. And I want to bring it to you, I guess, with the flavor and the power and the work of the Spirit, the way he brought it. So you'll hear it and you'll obey. Now understand, Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. This is a message that he's preaching not only to his own disciples, but to everyone there. And understand that the Jews in that day, they had departed from the sanctity of marriage, and they made divorce for any reason a part of the deal. And so Jesus is going to be very serious with them. And divorce for any reason is a part of our culture as well, isn't it? Imagine with me a moment. Let's just pretend that it's 1959. You're living here in the States. You've got a family. It's, you know, three kids. You're a young, starting family. You got your first home. 
You live in a neighborhood where you feel safe. I mean, the kids play outside. Sometimes during the summer, they don't even come home until after it's dark. You know all their friends. You know the neighbors are looking out for them because you're looking out for all the kids on the block as well. Now, your marriage is not perfect, but it's a good marriage. When you and your wife said, till death do us part, you knew what that meant. It is till death do us part. As a matter of fact, you don't really even know but one family that's ever been divorced. It's a nice sunny day, and you say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and just take a nap. And you take a nap, and when you wake up, suddenly it's 2019. You're the same age, you're in the same neighborhood. Wow, have things changed. I mean, you walk in your office, and there's this contraption in there. It's called a computer, and you start punching buttons. All of a sudden, some pictures come up. You cannot believe it. It's pornography, so you're going to stay out of that room. You walk in the other room, and there's this this gigantic TV. It's all kind of rectangular, and instead of 10 channels, there's hundreds of them. I mean, your favorite show used to be the Lawrence Welk Show. It used to be the Ed Sullivan Show, the Red Skelton Show. But you can't even watch this box because there's profanity and violence. And your kids, they don't even go outside anymore. They tell you they got a lot of friends, but you never see them, but they're always communicating with them on this little device called a portable phone and different elements they call texting and Snapchat, different things like that. And your spouse is no longer there. They said it was irreconcilable differences and they're gone. And then in the world, outside the home, you hear that now churches are ordaining homosexuals. And they affirm gay marriage. And, and you stand up and fight against that and say, that goes against the Bible. But then you're marked as bigoted and narrow-minded. Guys, what happened? In 1974, Dr. Carl Zimmerman, a professor of sociology at Harvard University, published a book entitled Family and Civilization. And in it, he established the unmistakable correlation between the strength of the family and the strength of the culture. Dr. Zimmerman identified three types of families, the last of which he called atomistic. And after a careful study of the world's great empires, he found that a nation that is predominantly atomistic that it rarely escapes extinction. Here are six particular attitudes that Dr. Zimmerman noted as atomistic. First, there is an increase in divorce for any reason. Second, the elimination of meaningful marriage ceremonies that stress commitment. Third, increase in couples who agree to be just companions, to not have children, not to commingle their finances, and they can divorce for any reason that they feel. Fourth, the refusal to follow traditional family norms. In both the Greek and the Roman cultures, the women at the end of their culture's existence refused to stay home, refused to have children, and if they had children, refused to raise the children. Fifth, the breaking down of inhibitions against adultery and sexual sin. Sixth, common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. So we as Christians today, what do we do? I want you to know that God has a plan. And that plan, by God's grace, he called marriage. And it's ordained by God 
and it's blessed by God. And so this morning, Jesus is going to talk about divorce and remarriage, but we need to start with marriage the way God planned it, and that's where I want to start this morning. So what does God think of marriage and divorce? First, marriage is God's plan, and it is to be preserved at all cost. Marriage between a man and a woman is God's design, and it's his design for our good and the good of culture. Verses 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 2 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I touched on this last week. Marriage is God's design. It's his plan. And it is designed to be between a man and a woman. And in Genesis chapter 1, when God was making everything, he made light in the dry land and the seas and the plants and the sun and the moon and the stars. And he made all the animals and the birds and the fish and then he called it good. And then in verse 27 of chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then after he looked at everything, including the man and woman, in verse 31, this is what he said. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. And so in Genesis 1, you have the creation of everything, including man and woman, and God says that marriage, right in that context, that it's very good. Now, after creating that in chapter 1, you go to chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is kind of like slow-mo, right? You kind of see the overarching in chapter 1, but chapter 2 takes a little more intensity look, and you see in, in chapter 2 that after declaring it good, the Lord fashioned a single human. His name was Adam. And then he said, it is not good. It is not good for him to be alone. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper that is suitable for him. Now, there's two words that are important there, helper and suitable. Adam needed a helper. And the word helper, it sounds menial, but in the Hebrew language, it's not menial at all. It's the Hebrew word azar, and it carries the idea supplying something that is crucial that has been lacking. And most of the time when, when this word is used in the Hebrew, it's most often referred to as God. Psalm 54, 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is a sustainer of my soul. So helper in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mind, it's not menial. It's something that is crucial. It's necessary. It was not good for man to be alone. It was necessary for God to create him a helper, a mate that would complement him. And by the way, that idea of one that is suitable, it carries the idea more literally, one according to his opposite or one corresponding to him. And the way God did it was different than any other of the created beings, either animal or human. He created this woman from him, from his rib. And she was part of him, but she was different. They complemented each other. They were necessary for each other. God and his design of marriage planned it so that two would become one. And God has given the covenant of marriage, and he calls it very good. 
And at the very end of Genesis chapter 2, Moses is very tactical in the way he writes Genesis 2, 24 and 25. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Now these, that particular text is so important that Jesus shares that text in Matthew 19, and Paul shares it also in Ephesians 5. In these two verses of Genesis, we're going to see four essential elements of what holds marriage together. And a marriage that is healthy has all four of these. And a marriage that is struggling has usually distorted it or one of these elements is missing. The first one is severance. Severance. The idea to leave or to sever. 224a, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. The Hebrew word for leave is most often translated to abandon. And what this means, it carries the idea of a new allegiance. You had an allegiance to your parents, but now you need to leave your parents, and you have a new allegiance to your mate. This doesn't mean you stop loving or honoring your father and mother. Scripture says very clearly you must do that. But it does mean that your first allegiance now is to your mate. You have become one. And when a couple does not do that, and the mother and father on either side are part of that deep relationship, it causes problems. There needs to be that severance, first thing. Second thing, permanence, a permanent commitment. 224B and be joined to his wife. Now, permanence naturally flows from severance. And the idea here is joined, and it literally means glued. And you can think of two pieces of wood that are glued together. When that glue finally dries, and you try to tear the, those two pieces apart, when you do that, it breaks them both, doesn't it? Same idea in marriage. You are joined, and you're joined for life. This is God's design. As a matter of fact, Jesus takes it a step farther. Mark 10, 9, whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, so what about those of you that have been married, divorced, and now remarried? God has ordained now that this marriage, you're joined. I don't want to talk about the circumstances of the last one. In this marriage, I can tell you from the Word of God, this one you're committed to. This is the one you're joined to. Stay married, just like glue. Severance, permanence, third one, unity. United together as one, and they shall become one flesh. Now, God did not create Eve to be another Adam. She wasn't a clone. Moses chose the word achad. And what this means, it stresses unity while recognizing diversity within that oneness. It's two individuals with the same hopes, the same dreams, the same goals, working together in unison as one. Unity. Unity. Severance, permanence, unity. The last one is intimacy. It's a relationship that is real, it's close, it's committed. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were not ashamed. And this is speaking a lot more than just their nakedness and body. 
It means that they were real with each other. They knew each other in the deepest parts. There were no secrets between them. There was honesty, mutual affection, severance, permanence, unity, intimacy. When all four of these are functioning as they they should, the marriage is healthy. When one of them is missing or one of them is distorted, there's problems in the marriage. Now, marriage between a man and a woman is God's plan. That's his design. And then you turn the page from Genesis chapter 2, and suddenly you have Genesis chapter 3. It starts out, Genesis 3, 1. And now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, shall not, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden? And then Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. So Satan comes in the form of a snake, and he plays upon the curiosity of the wife and then the husband, and they take that fruit and they eat, and suddenly everything has changed. And if you look at the sequence of the fall, particularly the verbs in verse 6, it happens rather rapidly. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And at that moment, everything changed, but it wasn't a change for the good. Suddenly, sin comes in, and suddenly their hearts are darkened. And Adam and Eve, they weren't blind before this, but suddenly they see the world in a whole new way, but it's not in a good way. And three changes in character took place here that affected the relationship in the first marriage. The first one is they became self-conscious and self-absorbed. They suddenly become very aware of themselves, suddenly pull back, no longer concerned so much with the other, but more concerned with themselves. Second thing, they became isolated and they withdrew from each other. They covered themselves. They hid in a bush. Suddenly you see this pulling away from each other, isolation, not together. And third, they became fearful and they hid from God. Genesis 3.8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden on the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So before Adam and Eve sinned, they saw everything as God saw it. Suddenly, after sin, things changed. And suddenly they hid themselves, not only from their mates, but from God himself. And when God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin... Neither of them spoke the truth. Neither of them took responsibility for the sin. What they do? They blame shifted, right? When God asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam blames Eve. When God asked Eve, what is this thing you have done? Eve blamed the serpent. And blame shifting is a very common thing that's, that's a problem in marriages today. But I've got to tell you, even though sin came in, Marriage is still God's design. And it is the highest form of relationship that God has ordained. It is a covenant, much more than just a commitment. And God desires marriages not only to remain, but to flourish. It's God's invention. And it is held together by one word, covenant. Covenant. God intends marriage to be lifelong. 
If you've made a commitment before God to marry somebody, it is a covenant before Him for life. And it is the foundation for happiness and the family. Now, Adam and Eve, even though they sinned, they stayed united all the way to the end. And Jesus taught marriage as a covenant. Matthew 19, 5 and 6, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus states right here that if you're married, it was God's idea. He joined you together, and no one should separate you. What does that mean? That's a covenant. That is something that should not be broken by man. It has been established by God. But our view, it views marriage differently. It doesn't view marriage as a covenant. It views marriage as a contract. Now understand, marriage legally is a contract. But there is a distinction between a covenant and a contract. And when you went into this marriage before God, you are now in a covenant much more than a contract. Biblically, there are four characteristics to a covenant that are different than a contract. First, covenants are initiated for the benefit of the other person. It's other-oriented, not self-oriented. Contracts are written for the benefit of the person, (laughs) self. Second, in a covenant relationship, people make unconditional promises. You stay together unconditionally, even when your husband or wife is being a jerk. You work it out. But a contract, it lays conditions that must be met. Third, covenant relationships view commitment as permanent. Permanent. Till death do us part. It's binding. Contracts have escape clauses. Fourth, covenant marriage reveals God's design and plan. This is God's idea. This is his solution in this broken life. And he gets involved in marriage. It's his idea. Marriage is meant for life. Now, I want to read you kind of a disclaimer. Now, this is from a book by Chuck Swindoll, Marriage from Surviving to Thriving. Great book, by the way. This is what he said. He said, if you or your children are in danger of physical harm, you have a moral obligation to put an end to the relationship as it exists now. For the sake of yourself and your children, get out, get away, get help. Unless and until the marriage is safe, depart and remain apart. The Lord never intended your commitment to be your destruction. God is firm, but he isn't cruel. What he's saying here, he's not saying divorce that person. What he's saying is separate, get help, work on reconciliation, but be safe. Now, I've got to tell you, I've experienced this. My parents split when I was 10 years old. Nasty divorce, infidelity, violence. I've experienced as a child both things. Now, I'm the last of six kids, and I've watched each of my siblings follow the same way that my mother and father went, infidelity and divorce. And I'm just trying to share my heart with you guys. Only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, has God given Karen and I a wonderful marriage. Because I know my heart, and I would have been just like my brother's. We were three years married, and God entered in through Jesus Christ, and he saved me. And Karen and I had real discussions, and we made a decision 
Jesus dead in the center of our marriage. He's first. And that is what made the difference. And then when the storms of life hit and the winds blew, our house did not fall. Why? Because it is built on the rock. And that rock is Jesus Christ, and there is no other. And I hate divorce because it hurts. First thing, marriage is God's plan, and it is to be preserved at all costs. Second thing, divorce and remarriage is not ideal but allowed in some circumstances. Divorce and remarriage is not ideal, but it is allowed in some circumstances. So God's original design is marriage between a man and a woman. If you've been divorced, God can bring healing. He can bring restoration. Now, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus said this. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it was said, whoever sends away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reasons of unchastity, which is immorality, make her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now Jesus says right here, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, now when he says it was said, he's speaking again, if you remember from last week, He's speaking about those religious leaders, those scribes, where they would make a pronouncement or a teaching that was different than the law of God. And these traditions, we call them that, traditions, they're what the people believe, and these are what the scribes taught. And Jesus says, okay, you guys say this, you can give a certificate of divorce, but I say unto you, claiming the authority as the Son of God, he's going to give the correct teaching on divorce and marriage. Now, there's only four basic interpretations of the biblical data on divorce and remarriage that are possible. There's only four ways to go from the Bible. One, the strictest view. Divorce is not permissible for any means, no matter what. The most, let's say the opposite view, the most liberal view teaches that you can divorce and remarriage as much as you want for any reason. The other two are somewhere in the middle. The third view is that once you're divorced, you can marry. I mean, once you're divorced, you, cannot, you, can, you can get the divorce, but you cannot marry. That's the third view. And the fourth view is that both divorce and remarriage are permitted under certain, certain circumstances. This is the one that Jesus is going to teach. Divorce and remarriage is permitted under certain circumstances. Now, in our text, Jesus is going to teach one of the four possibilities. It's that last one. And as God in the flesh, what he says is true. Now again, in Jesus' day, the dominant position was the liberal view. Literally, the scribes and Pharisees taught that you could pretty much divorce your wife for any reason. Now, in that culture, the wife had no rights. But the husband, hey, if he wanted to, you know, if the wife cooked a bad meal, I can divorce her. If the wife said something mean to him and he didn't like it, he could divorce her. If she embarrassed him in front of friends, he could divorce her. He could give her that certificate of divorce. And what they're basing this off of is Deuteronomy 24. I want to read that to you. Verses 1 through 4. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And in the, in the latter, husband turns against her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house. 
or if later the husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So in this passage here in Deuteronomy, it was the one upon which the Pharisees based their liberal standards. And again, that word indecency, that's found in verse 1. In the Hebrew, it means nakedness or shame or immorality. Now, the Hebrews, those scholars, those scribes, they had taken it all the way to the, the extreme. Indecency can mean anything the way you feel. But I want you to understand, I think, what most scholars think this verse is saying. It's not necessarily saying that the woman had committed adultery against him after they were married, although it could mean that. It also could mean that he discovered after they were married that she wasn't a virgin, that she claimed to be pure, and then after they were married, he discovers, wow, kind of like Joseph and Mary, right? Suddenly he finds out Mary's pregnant with baby Jesus. What was he going to do? He was going to put her away quietly and give her a certificate of divorce. Same idea, but then the Holy Spirit, of course, speaks to Joseph, and wow, it's God, and we know the rest of the story. Well, here, if they discovered that, they could go ahead and divorce it, the woman. Now, in God's eyes, granting a certificate of divorce does not mean he approved of it. As a matter of, matter of fact, this section in Deuteronomy is actually a warning it's, it's like saying, hey, don't go here. You don't want to be like this. You don't want to do this. Now, it assumes that divorce on proper grounds is accompanied with a certificate that it was permitted. But divorce was never God's plan. From the beginning, God's plan was a monogamous relationship between a man and a, and a woman committed for life. And God's design, marriage as a bond that the Lord intends to remain those two partners together, united. But after the fall, literally you have this battle of the sexes, right? And one of the, the issues of the battle of the sexes is a propensity to divorce. Divorce destroys the union of marriage. And God himself made the covenant, and he doesn't want it broken. And the Bible teaches that God hates divorce. Now, I want to stop here because understand the Bible doesn't teach that God hates divorced people. The Bible teaches that he hates divorce itself because divorce is always promoted through sin. And so God's heart is always reconciliation. God's heart is always restoration. God's heart is always union unbroken. That's God's heart. Malachi 2.16 says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers the garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God has never commanded divorce, endorsed, endorsed divorce, or blessed divorce. He is a God of reconciliation. And so Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for reasons of unchastity, he makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is affirming exactly what is said by Moses in Deuteronomy 24. The Pharisees had misinterpreted that to mean anything goes. I can divorce for any reason. And Jesus understands that they have a warped interpretation, so he's taking them to task right here. He's correcting the wrong thinking. Now, you understand, what he's saying here is that when, 
When a person gets a, di a divorce for any reason other than immorality, that suddenly they're forcing that wife that they've kicked out of their house to commit adultery. And not only that, the man that she marries, now he's guilty of adultery. Not only that, the man who kicked her out, when he remarries, he's guilty of adultery. And the wife he marries is guilty of adultery, multiple adultery. Right? And primarily, I think what he's saying, it was always done because their hearts already had adultery. He already talked about that in verse 28, just three verses earlier. He said, but I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman in lust, for her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's leading right to this point. These guys were feeding their adultery with divorce. And Jesus is taking them to task. And he's warning them, saying, don't do that. Because it offends God, and that's never been God's plan. Now, I want to walk you through the steps and help you to see these religious leaders, kind of the way their mind worked. In Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus goes on and says in verse 6, And so they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees respond to him in verse 7. And they say to him, why then did, did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now this reveals your misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Listen to Jesus' response. He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. There's not a lot of wiggle room here. And I want to be very serious with you as a pastor right now. I guarantee you there are people here right now that are contemplating divorce on unbiblical grounds. Or you're contemplating sexual sin thinking it's not a big deal. You need this. Stop. Stop. It's not pretty. It always brings destruction. Now, there's one other area in Scripture, biblically, where divorce is allowed. This is when two non-Christians get together. They're married. And by the way, when, you know, God loves marriage. Yay, marriage. They're married. And then somewhere in there, one of them becomes a believer, born again. They become a Christian. And suddenly you have a Christian married to a non-Christian. God wants you to stay married. Yay, marriage. Loves marriage. Don't divorce. That's God's plan. You married this person. That's God's covenant. Stay in it. The however in that, if the unbeliever makes a decision for whatever reason, leaves the wife and deserts her and divorces her, you are now free to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7.15 said, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such, but such cases, but God calls us to peace. Now, what you want to understand here is that word leave there is the, the Greek word karizo, and it means to, dis, to um, dissolve the marriage or divorce. It doesn't mean just desertion. It means ending of the relationship. And so there's that clause in there. But can I tell you something? That's not God's desire. 
If you're married to an unbeliever, God wants you to stay in that marriage. If the unbeliever leaves and suddenly divorces you, you're free to remarry. Now, what if the non-Christian deserts and doesn't divorce? That's happened. It kind of keeps that person trapped. If that person is unfaithful at any point and you hear about it, you're free to divorce them and then to remarry. But I want to say something here. Careful. (laughs) If you're going to remarry, remarry a believer, born-again Christian. Why? Because Scripture says that. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and 15, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or fellowship with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's the devil. And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Don't reattach yourself in a relationship that you will regret. And I'm speaking to also young ones here, maybe you're not married. Don't date an unbeliever. Please. I get it on the backside as a pastor. If you're in a relationship right now with somebody that does not trust Christ, and you do in the relationship, if they are not born again, you can't save them. It won't happen. That's God's job. You're called to be faithful. I'm called to be faithful. Be faithful to the Word of God. Now, why do some marriages make it, and they're strong, and others don't? This reminds me of something I read about Mr. and Mrs. Winston Churchill. The British Prime Minister was famous. He had a tender love for his wife, Clementine. One story goes that someone asked him, if you could live your life again, what would you want to be? And after 55 years of marriage, Mr. Churchill replied with a twinkle in his eye, Mrs. Churchill's second husband. That's that's wisdom right there, man. He used that moment. He scored brownie points big time. Well, how does he have that kind of marriage? How do we get this kind of marriage? Well, in his book, Chuck Swindoll, Marriage from Surviving to Thriving, he shares five things from Ephesians chapter 4. I want to share them with you. And in the context, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, not specifically those who are married, but in the context, it's it's in in view of relationship, and these work great for marriage. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. I'm going to take them each a little bit at a time. First, cultivate complete honesty. Cultivate complete honesty. Verse 25 says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, who are members of one another. Falsehood means deception, lying. It means that within your marriage relationship, there should be no lying, no secrets. John R. Stott says this. He says, Marriage is built on trust. Trust is built on truth. So falsehood undermines marriage, while truth strengthens it. Deception is the Greek word pseudos, It doesn't fix anything. It has the power to destroy intimacy in a marriage. But complete honesty, even if it's difficult, it builds up the marriage. That means no secret bank accounts, no secret relationships. That means no secrets. Honesty. You're an open book with your spouse. Complete honesty. Second thing, express anger in appropriate ways and at the right time. Express anger in the appropriate way and in the right time. Verse 26 and 27 of Ephesians 4 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, sometimes there are righteous things that it's right to be angry, right? When a child is abused, of course I'm upset. 
when somebody's mistreating somebody else, of course we're to be angry. But in the context of marriage, you should have the freedom to actually be upset, but the way you express it really matters. And your timing, guys, you've got to have some wisdom on this one. What he's saying here is there's a time to share, maybe a time not. And this idea about don't go to bed angry is like deal with it. <laughs> don't wait. I heard one person write, they said something to the effect of, when I go to bed angry, it's like wet cement. I wait up as dried cement. You don't want to wake up as dried cement. You want to have that fluidity in your marriage, that honesty. Yes, it's okay to sometimes be upset, but express it in ways that doesn't belittle or hurt or undermine or cut your mate. Third thing, don't steal from your mate. I love this one. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one in need. Now, Chuck Swindoll says that Paul wrote this to a church, he says, with its share of freeloaders. He says, anyone who claims to be part of the community enjoying the fruit of its labor and yet contributes nothing is stealing. They weren't serving or giving, they were only taking. So in the context of a church, it's that. But how does this apply to us in marriage? I steal when I make a promise to my wife that I'm going to give her a certain amount of time, but I actually use that time for something else. I steal when I give all my energy to my work and when I come home, I have nothing left for the marriage. I steal when I use our finances for me, decisions that I want. I steal when, I, when my wife reveals something to me and I reveal in confidence and I reveal that to someone else. I steal when my wife tells me a secret in confidence and then later I use it to hurt her. I could go on and on. Don't steal. Fourth, Guard your speech. Guard your speech. 29 and 30 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you sealed for the day of redemption. What you say and how you say it really, really matters. That old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's not true. <laughs> They hurt. And I have been in my office, no kidding, and I have heard couples literally break each other down, tear each other apart, and use words I wouldn't even use with an enemy. Careful. Last one. Be kind. Be nice. Be kind, be nice. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, we can be nice and kind to people on the street. How come we can't be nice and kind to those in our own marriage? And sometimes I think, particularly in that kind of a verse, particularly in the context of marriage, it's not always the big deal, right? Like, okay, I'm going to take my, my spouse on a trip and that'll show how much I love them or I'm going to buy her a ring. Those are nice. But it's better the everyday little things that really matter. The kind words, doing something to help them. Understanding how they're made and their weaknesses you come up and support. Five things. Cultivate complete honesty. Express anger in appropriate ways at the right time. Don't steal from your maid. Guard your speech. Be kind and nice. 
And as a pastor, I've been privileged to be in many, many different weddings where I've, I've been able to, to marry people and to see how God will bring that union together. My prayer for our church is that we will be faithful and honor the commitment that we made before God as a covenant. If we do that, wow, what a win. Not only for your marriage, not only for this church, but for our culture. Let's pray. Father, we give the the rest of this time to you. A very serious message, Lord. A very clear word from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, would you help us, if we're married, to be faithful to our spouses. Help those who are single to have wisdom and to navigate whether they should date someone or see someone. Help, Father, in ways that only your spirit and truth can. I pray for those, Lord, who might have been contemplating, Lord, doing something that they will so regret. Father, by your spirit, would you convict them and turn them and help them to keep the commitment that they made before you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to pray for our church, and, and particularly in a couple different areas. One, there is an all-out assault on marriage. And so I just want to encourage you guys. <laughs> You're in it for life. Go the long haul. If you have issues in your marriage, let us know as pastors. We Not only will pray for you, but we'd be more than happy to meet and walk through trials that you're in. If you're single, man, this is a biggie. I see too many singles compromise in this area. Dating someone who is born again doesn't mean just because they attend church. It doesn't mean just because they belong to a denomination. Do they love and adore Jesus Christ? Is he their first passion? That really matters. And wait on God and his timing. So I want to pray for us in those two main areas. Father, I ask your grace upon us. Help us, Lord, to honor you in every way. Lord, we see that you are a God of compassion and love. You are a God who loves marriage and bringing couples together. It is not your desire, Lord, that anything should separate that union. Father, I pray for our church and every married couple here that you would strengthen the marriages, that by your spirit you would help them to see the commitment that they made before you as a covenant, and you would reinforce them by your spirit and truth. I pray for those who are single in our congregation, Lord, that you would be their first love. God, and they would want to honor you in every way, and you would give them so much wisdom, Lord, as they navigate this, and that you would bring them that mate who you've made perfectly for them to compliment them. And I pray this in Jesus' name.